that I think is what Biden's going to do vis-a-vis Russia today. They're going to engage with the government, but they're also going to speak out about democracy and human rights as they've already done with respect to the arrest of, of Mr. Navalny. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Zach and Franz. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War generated meteoric expectations for U.S.-Russia relations. Just 30 years later, not only have these expectations not been met, but the Cold War has been replaced by a new era of U.S.-Russia confrontation, a hot peace. In this episode, we dive into the development of this new confrontational era and discuss what policy direction the Biden administration might choose to take. We examine just how instrumental Vladimir Putin is to the future of U.S.-Russia relations. Joining us in this discussion is former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall. Ambassador McFall served for five years in the Obama administration, first as special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council at the White House from 2009 to 2012, and then as U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2012 to 2014. He's currently the director at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. As a quick note, a video of our call with Ambassador McFall is available on YouTube. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. So Ambassador McFall, Thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thanks for having me. So to get us started, um, I I wanted to talk about the past in order to discuss the future of U.S.-Russia relations. So in that regard, um, you worked at the NSC in the early years of President Obama's first term, and you authored the the famous U.S.-Russia reset. Um, and as you outline in From Cold War to Hot Peace, the reset achieved some major policy breakthroughs while Dmitry Medvedev was president of Russia. I was wondering if you could just briefly run our listeners through your kind of thinking in creating the reset in the first place, and then some of the you know, policy breakthroughs that you achieved during that time. Well, again, thanks for having me, everybody. Uh, Zach, thanks for plugging my book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, a U.S. ambassador in Putin's Russia. Uh, It's still available on Amazon and wherever you buy your books. Uh, And there it is. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Well, it's it's a big question, but let me try to do it uh, with some detail, and then we can dig deeper if you want. So we came into the government right after a very contentious time in U.S.-Russia relations. Um, Russia had just invaded Georgia. Uh, Diplomatic relations between Bush and Putin Actually, we're in a very positive place after September 11th. I think people need to remember that. But then gradually, over time, faded to a very rocky place. And when we came in, there there was not a lot of contact. And so we did a policy review, just like uh, the Biden team is doing right now. Uh, We did of all countries, but Russia was a a high priority one for uh, President Obama. And we came up with, and I you notice I'm using the word we, uh, you use the word I, I'm going to use the word we, because government is about, is a team sport. Uh, I don't want to pretend that it was just my policy. It was Barack Obama, President Obama's policy, first and foremost. But uh, there are some things that I think are misunderstood. So thanks for asking. Number one, uh, the reset was never about trying to improve relations between the United States and Russia. I, sometimes people say, well, we just wanted to get along with Russia. 
Uh, that is not the way Obama thought about the uh, policy, most certainly not the way I thought about it. Um, instead, it was, a, it was an idea that we, there were certain things in the world that we wanted to get done. We, the United States, we, the Obama administration. Um, and we thought on certain issues, we were more likely to achieve our objectives if we were cooperating with Russia rather than uh, fighting with Russia. Um, and you know what Obama liked to call win-win outcomes. So you know Obama, when he was your age, just you got you all know that uh, you know he wrote his honors thesis about uh, arms control and reducing nuclear weapons. He felt very passionate about that. And so when we came into government, then the old START treaty was going to expire that year, and so he wanted to do a new one. Um, and you can't do a new START treaty without cooperating with Russia, right? So. Uh, that's that's a very clear uh, objective we had that we got done, by the way, and and uh, signed and then ratified by the Senate, reducing by 30 percent the number of nuclear weapons in the world. That's that's good for America, we thought. And we presumed it was good for Russia or Medvedev wouldn't sign it. Uh, number two, we were debating uh, uh, this is ancient history now for you all, uh, but we were debating back in 2009. Um, how to conduct and how to change our policy in Afghanistan. And we ended up increasing the number of troops, a big surge. Uh, we needed ways uh, to get them there and get them personnel beyond just being dependent on Pakistan. So we developed this idea called the Northern Distribution Network that supplied our troops through this Northern route through Russia, through Central Asia. And Medvedev agreed and that was cooperative and that was good for us and good for them. Um, and by the way, 2011, we uh, violated Pakistani sovereignty rather dramatically into, and killed Osama bin Laden in this operation. We couldn't have done that if we were 100% dependent on Pakistan for our supplies. Uh, three, uh, Iran. Uh, we had this idea that we had to really push hard to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, and we had a pressure track and an engagement track. And we wanted the pressure track first, engagement track second. We put in place in 2010, the most comprehensive multilateral sanctions against Iran ever. Uh, and we couldn't have done that without uh, Medvedev uh, signing off to that. Um, so that, that was the concept. I could go through some other ones. Uh, getting Russia into the WTO was another thing we did, but that was the concept. Win-win outcomes that made Russia better off and made the United States better off. Right. And Ambassador, I think, you know, we'll probably touch back on the point of win-win outcomes, but reading your book and kind of the reframing of the reset um, or my understanding of the reset through through the book was, was really fascinating. So I want to talk about the kind of one of these critical turning points in the reset, which is after you had became ambassador in 2012, when Putin was reelected to the presidency, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about what Putin's return to the presidency meant for the reset and U.S.-Russia relations? Uh, everything. Um, and uh, in, in my opinion, in my mind, and uh, I write about it in the book, and you know, more will be known when the archives are open, but um, I was worried about that long before I became the U.S. ambassador. Um, and in fact, the day he uh, announced his nomination for running for re-election. Uh, that's the day the reset ended in my mind, uh, analytically. I even discussed it with President Obama, and I even thought about maybe I shouldn't go to Russia as the ambassador because we're not going to be able to do that much with these folks. 
Um, but, uh, and it was even worse than I thought because back then that was, you know, September, 2011, uh, we had, you know, we had met Putin as well as Medvedev, you know, in our interactions, Obama had uh, met him. Uh, there is a photo up there. You can't really see it with the, the lights, but there we all are together out at Putin's dacha having breakfast, 2009. I, I had studied Putin long before I joined the government and, you know, this gets to international relations theory, right? but some people think that it's just about power. Uh, other theories say regime type matters. And I think power matters, regime type matters, but individuals matter too. And you can have the same regime and the same amount of power, but you get the change at the top of the government and the foreign policy can change rather radically. Uh, by the way, we've seen that in the United States, I, I think in the last four years, uh, same democratic system, same amount of power, but the way we behaved in the world changed rather radically during the Trump era. And my prediction, it's gonna change rather radically now in the Biden era, right? So if we can think that that can happen in our country, why shouldn't we presume that it might happen in other countries? Um, and and in my opinion, in my when I saw it up close and personal, it was even more stark because Putin's not a win-win guy, he's a zero-sum guy. If it's plus two for America, it's minus two for Russia. Uh, and number two, he thinks of us as an enemy, an ideological enemy to his regime. Um, and by the way, part of that analysis is right. Like he, he's an autocratic leader and democracies by their very existence threaten uh, those other uh, governments with other forms of legitimacy. So already in September, 2011, I knew that things were gonna get a lot dicier. There's one other important detail here. We've gotten a lot done, right? We already did the START Treaty. We already did WTO, uh, Iran sanctions, uh, new visa regime. So by the time we got to the end of 2011, only the really hard stuff was left, like you know, missile defense cooperation or where are the borders of Georgia? And I knew that too, that, that was gonna be the case no matter who is the leader, but then add to that Putin, it was gonna get, it was gonna get bad no matter what. And then, and this is really important part of diplomacy, uh, other people get a voice. Other people get to do things. Uh, you know, it's not just about you sitting with your Russian government officials in some back room. Uh, nobody smokes cigars anymore, but uh, you know, sitting back there plotting what we're gonna do. Because at the end of that year, there was a parliamentary election in Russia, falsified kind of in normal ways, five, six, seven percent. But this time, a, a bunch of Russians documented it with their smartphones and then spun it around the internet and generated 500, 5,000, and later 200,000 people on the streets of Moscow to protest um, the, that falsification. One of the leaders, by the way, of those protests was Alexei Navalny, uh, who's recently gone back to Russia and imprisoned and is sparking new protests in Russia because of his imprisonment. And as a result of that event, before Putin's presidential election, right? Uh, the presidential election was in March. These uh, protests happened in December. He became very paranoid about the United States. And he blamed Obama, he blamed Clinton, and he blamed me uh, for fomenting revolution against his regime. Uh, and by the way, they're still blaming me. I was I was featured on television last night, uh, saying that Navalny is still you know my puppet. And I want to state for the record, uh, Navalny has never taken any money from America. He's not a CIA agent. But 
instrumentally, that's the argument that Putin was using that we are seeking to destroy and weaken Russia. And that was, you know, well, right before I got there as the US ambassador. So, you know, we did some marginal things together. It wasn't completely off the rails, but, but I think already by January, 2012, uh, the reset was over. Ambassador McFaul, now we want to um, shift things towards the domestic landscape. Um, last week, President Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. What role did he play in the Obama administration with regards to Russia and the reset when you, when you were there? Well, I, I worked very closely with the vice president. Uh, he actually gave the big speech at the Munich Security Conference that really codified this word reset. Uh, as uh, the bumper sticker for our policy, right? Uh, Obama had used it before in a press interview, but when Biden used it at that uh, meeting, that's when it became a headline all over the world, uh, you know, kind of like detente and rapprochement with the good and the bad of that, right? Everybody knows the word reset now, uh, but a lot of people have a negative association with it, but it's stuck because of that Biden speech. Um, We then had a bit of, a, I would say, a division of labor in the Obama administration in that Obama dealt with Russia and President Medvedev directly, uh, mostly, and Biden dealt with the leaders in the region. So Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, I went to all three of those countries with Vice President Biden, and he was always the guy saying, you know, the reset does not mean We're going to sell you, you countries out, you allies, you friends of ours out. We're going to, we're going to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I tell you that because that's a, I think that frames the way he thinks about Russia today. Um, number two, I took one trip with uh, Biden to Russia in 2011. We met then with Prime Minister Putin. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty cordial but tough meeting. Uh, he wasn't seeking to be his friend. He was just trying to advance our our interests, pretty testy exchange about Georgia at the time. Um, uh, and then 30 minutes after that meeting, we went and met with leaders of the Russian human rights and uh, op opposition leaders over at Spaso House, uh, over at the US ambassador's house. And I tell you that story because that I think is what Biden's gonna do vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia today. They're gonna engage with the government, but they're also gonna speak out about democracy and human rights as they've already done with respect to the arrest of, of Mr. Navalny. And um, Ambassador McFaul, Biden has always been a relationship person. And, and I want to know what you think we, we can expect very briefly from US-Russian relations going forward, especially under this Biden administration. What does his national security personnel tell us about how the United States will approach uh, Vladimir Putin and also Russia? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, I don't have an easy answer. You know, I think I think they're going to do what we we did during times in the Cold War. So arms control, like the New START treaty, they want to extend. I think that's right. Um, you know, maybe engage on multilateral issues where we have common interests. So climate change, pandemic, nonproliferation, and I, I think that's right as well. Um, and then also a big dose of containment. Uh, particularly in Europe, uh, but not, not just there, where they're deterring and pushing back on Putin's belligerent ways uh, and speaking up about democracy and human rights, even if um, knowing, you know, rather soberly that just releasing a statement to say that a Navalny shouldn't be arrested doesn't mean that Putin's going to free him. Um, so that's the general contours. 
I also think the Russia stock, if you will, right? If you think of foreign policy as like a portfolio, uh, the Russian stock is a falling stock. Uh, nobody wants to be part of Russia policy right now in the new Biden team. Everybody wants to be part of China. Uh, that's the hot stock. Um, you know, when I was do when in the beginning of Obama, uh, Russia was the hot stock. Everybody wanted to be part of Russia policy, and it was a giant food fight to go to the first summit in July. You know, we had to take two planes, I think, because everybody wanted to go on that trip in the government because we were doing things right. It was an active portfolio. Um, Russia today, you know, is no, is not going to be an active place. Um, and it's going to be hard to get any any achievements either on the cooperative front or on the democracy and human rights front. So my guess is that President Biden actually won't spend a lot of time on Russia policy. And in your book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, and also earlier in our conversation, you argue that individuals matter and that Vladimir Putin as an individual was instrumental to the souring of U.S.-Russia relations. And Perhaps the next reset in U.S.-Russian relations might occur if there's future domestic political change within Russia. I've also heard that um, from other prominent Russia scholars that Putin simply represents a deep-rooted nationalism within Russia and that that's deeply antagonistic towards the West and towards the U.S. So I'm wondering, how do you respond to this argument? Yeah, uh, Julie, it's actually the most important debate in the academic uh, literature and in, in policy terms too, by the way, those, those relate. Um, so thanks for the question. Um, you know, I'd say a couple of things. Um, Russia is a much more diverse society, I think, than most Americans know. I've lived six or seven years of my life in Russia, uh, going all the way back to 1983. I'm now banned from traveling to Russia because I'm on the sanctions list. Uh, tragically. This is the longest I've been out of that country since 1983. Um, and, you know, so the first thing I'd say is uh, there's lots of diversity of opinion. There's really rich people in Russia, really poor, urban, rural, educated, non-educated, uh, you know, 20% of the country's Muslim. Uh, some of those Muslim areas are, are very, very different. I've been to many, most of them you know, they are dominated by the Tatars and, and, you know, Tatarstan feels and acts and behaves and has a different worldview, very different than say Moscow or uh, Vladivostok. So just remember, uh, we're generalizing about 140, 150 million people. It's actually lots of different views in the same way that Trump represented some Americans, but not all Americans. Putin represents some Russians, but not all Russians. That's the first thing I would say, even today, where he, when he's been in power for 20 years and he controls all the media and he controls the, uh, the parliament, um, that he's only at you know 55% approval ratings, not much of an achievement. Uh, by the way, this used to drive Obama nuts because Obama's a very competitive guy. And in, in his briefing papers, it always you know, have Putin's approval rating. And he would say, come on, man. If I, if I, if Fox and all the television stations were controlled by me, and and the U. the Senate and the House were controlled by me, and every billionaire was beholden to me, I, I would be at ninety percent. You know how hard is that? Like it's that's not that's not very hard at all. So that's important to remember. Number one, um, number two. You know I would just say over the last thirty years, 
uh, there's been much more volatility than stability with respect to Russians' views towards the West, right? So you go back to Brezhnev, the regime was very anti-Western. But the next leader, after a couple of uh, interregnum leaders, Gorbachev, uh, was very pro-Western and pro-American, one of the most pro-Western uh, leaders that country's had. Uh, and during that time, uh, there were a lot of cooperative uh, feelings among Russians towards the United States. I lived there. Uh, I remember it well. Uh, 90s, the same thing. Yeltsin was more pro-American than a lot of Americans, by the way. Um, he was like, we could do no wrong. Uh, you know, I remember having debates with some of his people on his team. It's like, our democracy is not perfect, folks. Um, and, and, you know, back then there was a euphoric moment that we were going to be allies and, and most Russians had a positive view of us. Uh, and then, you know, because of their economic depression and mistakes that Yeltsin made, that created the permissive conditions for, for Putin to come in with this different narrative. Um, but then the Medvedev years, just, just a few years ago, 60% of Russians in 2010 had a positive view of the United States and over 50% of Americans had a positive view of Russia. So that's, that's it with autocracy and with Putin as prime minister. And I just tell, I just say that because I think it's a lot more volatile, these preferences than than some observers think, which is not to say, I wanna emphasize that there is not a big segment of society in Russia that supports Putin's views and his attitude towards the West. There are, but there's a lot of people that support alternative views. And when you see tens of thousands of people in over a hundred cities in Russia, not just Moscow and St. Petersburg, go out uh, to demonstrate uh, to free Navalny and for, you know, I think they're there to, for their own uh, uh, human rights, not just for Navalny. Uh, when it's illegal and they know there's a great likelihood that they'll be arrested. And by the way, sub freezing temperatures across the country. Um, that's an amazing thing. And remember, if there's 10,000 out there willing to be arrested, that means that there's hundreds of thousands of more passive people that have the same preferences, but just don't want to go to jail. So I, I think there's a lot more complexity to that question than, than uh, is oftentimes assumed. All right, great. Thank you so much, Professor McFowell, for joining us today. Um, it was such a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Uh, fantastic questions, you all. Perfect and a, a great place to end on, Julia. The last thing I'll say, um, because uh, it's on my mind, it's, it's a great question you asked at the end. Um, what is more crazy as a prediction? That 20 years from now, Putinism, as we see it today, will basically be governing the same way without Putin, or that there'll be some other kind of regime. Uh, I think the first prediction is the crazy one, uh, to think that this thing will just, just ch chug along without him. Uh, I don't know what the second kind will be, but I think that that is a much more likely outcome that there'll be some political change after Putin. That's a important question to chew on, Ambassador McFall. Well, yes, invite me back. Let's discuss it again. We would love to have you chance. back. All right, All right Ambassador. All right, thanks for having me, y'all. All right, bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA 
on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.